Good evening. This evening's reading is taken from Genesis chapters 43 and 44. And as Ben said, can be found on page 48 of the Church Bibles, or you can follow along on the screens. So starting at chapter 43. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go back and buy us a little more food. But Judah said to him, The man warned us solemnly, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother along with us, we will go down and buy food for you. But if you will not send him, we will not go down, because the man said to us, You will not see my face again unless your brother is with you. Israel asked, Why did you bring this trouble on me by telling the man you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us closely about ourselves and our family. Is your father still living? He asked us. Do you have another brother? We simply answered his questions. How are we to know, he would say, bring your brother down here? Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy along with me and we will go at once so that we and you, our children, may live and not die. I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. As it is, if we had not delayed, we could have gone and returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be, then do this. Put some of the best products of the land in your bags and take them down to the man as a gift. A little balm and a little honey some spices and myrrh, some pistachio nuts and almonds. Take double the amount of silver with you, for you must return the silver that was put back into the mouths of your sacks. Perhaps it was a mistake. Take your brother also and go back to the man at once, and may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. So the men took the gifts and doubled the amount of silver, and Benjamin also. They hurried down to Egypt and presented themselves to Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him, and took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and take our donkeys. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. We beg your pardon, our Lord, they said. We came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight, in the mouth of his sack. So we have brought it back with us. We have also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. Then he brought Simeon out to them. The steward took the men into Joseph's house gave them water to wash their feet, and provided fodder for their donkeys. They prepared their gifts for Joseph's arrival at noon. 
because they had heard that they were to eat there. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts they had brought into the house, and they bowed down before him to the ground. He asked them how they were, and then he said, How is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, Your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, Is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he'd washed his face, he came out and, controlling himself, said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, the brothers by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is detestable to Egyptians. The men had been seated before him in the order of their ages, from the firstborn to the youngest, and they looked at each other in astonishment. When portions were served to them from Joseph's table, Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. So they feasted and drank freely with him. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack, along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with the donkeys. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, Go after those men at once, and when you catch up with them, say to them, Why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination? This is a wicked thing you have done. When he caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, Why does my Lord say such things? Far be it for your servants to do anything like that. We even brought back to you from the land of Canaan the silver we found inside the mouths of our sacks. So why would we steal silver or gold from your master's house? If any of your servants is found to have it, he will die and the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well, then, he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free from blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. At this they tore their clothes, Then they all loaded their donkeys and returned to the city. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this you have done? Don't you know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to you, my lord? Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. But Joseph said, Far be it for me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my lord. Let me speak a word to you, my lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? 
And we answered, We have an aged father, and there is a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead, and he is the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord has said. Then our father said, Go back and buy a little more food. But we said, We cannot go down, only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, He's surely been torn to pieces, and I haven't seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please let your servant remain here as my lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that will come down on my father. Vicky, thank you. You read that beautifully. It was a long reading to give you, uh, and uh, you've done a fantastic job with it. Thank you. Um, there, <laughs> do you hate it when preachers try to make themselves look relevant by quoting from some recent sort of uh, film or song or, 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 or trend? Does that really annoy you? Well, um, it, what if I were to mention a film that's 30 years and 17 days old? Would that be okay? It's certainly not current, is it? I don't even know, K.O., whether you guys will have seen this film, which is twice most of your ages. Um, but on the 2nd of February, 1993, the film Groundhog Day hit cinemas for the first time. Now, as I'm sure you know, the 2nd of February is Groundhog Day. And the plot of the movie uh, revolves around uh, Bill Murray, who's a weather presenter, who is sent uh, to uh, observe the behavior of Punxsutawney Phil, uh, a groundhog uh, in the town of Punxsutawney, uh, where um, the idea is if he sees his own shadow, then there's going to be a load more winter. But, um, well, anyway, the details aren't that important, are they? And I can't remember them. Uh, but... <laughs> but um, the, the film has given a, uh, a kind of, well, a phrase into the English language, which is Groundhog Day, the idea of a day that is just like the day before and when the next day is going to be just the same and the same and the same and the same. Because um, Bill Murray wakes up the next morning uh, and... Um, 
what's playing on the radio sounds weirdly familiar. It's uh, I Got You Babe by Sonny and Cher. In fact, I think this film holds the world record for the most playings of the song I Got You Babe by Sonny and Cher. Uh, by some distance. Anyway, he wakes up in the morning, uh, he hears uh, I Got You Babe by Sonny and Cher, he then hears the same banter on the radio that he heard the day before, he thinks this is very strange, and he goes out and realises that it is the day before. And he's just stuck in this time loop running through the 2nd of February every day. And no matter what he does in the day, he goes to bed and he wakes up in the morning and it's just the same day and he lives it over again. Now, I wonder whether, like me, as you listened to chapters 43 and 44, you thought, this is a bit Groundhog Day. This feel, I feel like we've been here before. Wasn't it last week that Joseph's brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain from him, and, and they went back, and there was silver found in the necks of their sacks, and then uh, they went back to, to their father? And it, it, it all seems to be the same. The things that happen here are so similar. They go back down to Egypt, they bow down before Joseph, his dreams are, uh, his, his dreams are fulfilled again, uh, he weeps again, and it just goes on and on, so many of the same things. I, I, I think I mentioned last week, I, I, I know some of you probably weren't here last week, uh, and some of you probably weren't awake by this point, uh, but um, I mentioned last week that this is the point in the musical where I am genu- generally completely lost and thinking, why, why are we, what, what's going on? I really do find that this section rather drags. And perhaps that's how you feel as we, as we come to this reading. You think, this does sound really like what we've just been through. What's the point of this Groundhog Day? Well, as we look at it, I think it's important to recognize that, yes, there is a lot of repetition. Uh, and um, at the end of chapter 44, you get the repetition of the beginning of chapter 43. Um, Judah, who makes a speech uh, to Jacob at the beginning of chapter 43, kind of rec- recounts that speech to Joseph at the end of chapter 44. And there's lots of similar things uh, in between. But this isn't just an accident, and it's not just that the, uh, the author of Genesis kind of you know, got stuck on cut-and-paste mode, and, and it's all kind of you know, chunks of familiar text thrown together, because this is incredibly intricate and detailed. Let me just give you some examples uh, of, of how this is really subtly done. Uh, the first thing is uh, the use of the phrase, the man. So you see it for the first time in, in this uh, passage in uh, chapter 43, verse 3, uh, when um, uh, Jacob says to the brothers, back you go, go back to Egypt, get us some more food. Uh, Judah says, the man warmed us solemnly. You'll not see my face again until your brother is with you. Uh, and actually that phrase, the man, just keeps coming back all the way through. Uh, so it's uh, there again in verse 5. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. Because the man said to us, you will not see my face again uh, unless your brother is with you. And it's actually sort of slightly comic. The way that Judah is referring to his own brother as the man. In the way that generally, in English at least, only three-year-olds ever refer to people. The man said, 
the man did this. The man pointed over there. But all the way through, say then again, verse 7. They replied, the man questioned us. Sorry, verse 6. Israel asked, why did you bring this trouble on me, telling the man you had another brother? They replied, the man questioned us. And on it goes and on it goes. Until you get to verse 15. So uh, up till verse 15, you've got the brothers, and they're talking about the man. When you get to verse 15, suddenly the brothers are the men, uh, and they're talking about Joseph. So Joseph is then named by name, and the brothers are called the men. Uh, and, and so very subtly, Moses, let's call him Moses, the writer of Genesis, because uh, that's who it is, uh, he, um, he is sort of helping you to see that there's this problem with unrecognition, but there's also this thing of kind of being home and away, this thing of being uh, away from their land. They're the strangers in Egypt. Joseph is the stranger to them, or so they think. In Egypt, they're the strangers. And so then from verse 15 onwards, they're the men. So verse seven, verse, it is verse 17, so I need my specs to see the little numbers. Uh, the man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened. So there's this very subtle, very carefully woven narrative where the way language is being used and the way repetition is being used is telling you something. It's drawing you into the story and telling you things about what's actually going on for these actual people in the moment. Uh, And then you have uh, the brothers, the men as they are now in verse uh, 15. Uh, They get really scared because Joseph invites them round his house. It is quite like little children actually, isn't it? The man's invited us to his house. And they're scared. Look what they say, verse 18. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slaves and steal our donkeys. And it's deliberately funny. Like who's worried about a donkey if you've just been kidnapped and made a slave for the rest of your life? And they'll take our donkeys. Uh, And so then what the steward does is he uh, takes them into Joseph's house. And the first thing he does is gives them water to wash their feet and provides fodder for their donkeys. He's not stealing their donkeys. He's looking after their donkeys. Uh, And then when they leave in chapter 44, verse 3, uh, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. The donkeys are a kind of, uh, you know, light touch on the way through to sort of help you to see that there's something ridiculous about what's going on. There's an element of fast to all of this. The brothers are terrified that Joseph is looking for a way to do them in. They're terrified when they find their silver uh, in their sacks in chapter uh, 42. They're terrified when they're treated like VIPs because there must be some some trick. They're invited to number 10 Downing Street for dinner. That's what happens. And they think the only reason he could possibly do this is because he wants to take us as slaves. He's going to do us in. He's going to beat us and enslave us. When what actually happens is that they're treated like VIPs in the house of the second most powerful man in Egypt. And there's something that Judah says in chapter 44, verse 18, that I think 
just gives us an insight into the psychology of the brothers. Why is it that they constantly think that something is going to happen, that something is going to go wrong? Chapter 44, verse 16, Judah says, What can we say to my Lord? Judah replied, What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now your slaves. We ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. They were scared that Joseph was going to enslave them. But strikingly, in the end, when Judah is confronted with what's happened with Benjamin, he actually says, God has uncovered our guilt and we deserve to be your slaves. And there's kind of irony and farce in all of this because whilst they've been terrified that Joseph is gonna do something bad to them, they've got no idea how much they deserve Joseph to do something bad to them. And that's all the way through it as well. So they sold Joseph into slavery for 12 shekels of silver And every time they try to give Joseph silver, they keep getting it back. They can't get rid of the silver. It's a bit like Judas. They cannot get rid of their silver. It's like the spot on uh, Lady Macbeth's hand. The brothers have got a profoundly guilty conscience. Proverbs 28, verse 1 says, the wicked flee when no one pursues them. Everything that happens to them, they think maybe now's the time when we're going to get it. When we're going to get what's coming to us. And the irony of it all is that the one who is doing to them so much better than they deserve, the one who keeps treating them absurdly well, giving them back their money when they've paid for corn, uh, welcoming them into his house, which is, you know, the sort of most prestigious residents in Egypt, every time he blesses them, they think he's going to curse them, even though he's the one who, if they really knew who he was, they'd really expect him to curse them, and yet he is determined to bless them. That's the first thing to notice. The brothers are saddled with a powerfully guilty conscience because of what happened with Joseph. Do you remember chapter 42, uh, what um, Reuben says? Uh, and, And chapter 42, verse 21, they said to one another, surely we're being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben said, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. And again, the irony in it all, they don't think Joseph can understand them. They've got no idea who he is. He's speaking to them through an interpreter. But in front of their brother, they are talking plainly about what they did to him. And the guilt of it, 24 years later, is still with them. And woven through this intricate story, you see in Joseph a glimpse of the face of God. 
he is the clearest echo in the Bible so far, getting towards the end of the first book of it, of how Jesus treats us. He comes into a world which he made, but which does not recognize him. And though we should have received him, we murdered him. And yet in that very act of his death, he redeemed a people for himself and gave them eternal life. Now I mentioned Groundhog Day. But actually in in many ways, verses 43 and 44 are more like a sort of strange mirror image of a film like The Joker or Batman. It's become a kind of familiar idea, isn't it? The origin story. Uh, And uh, origin story movies tend to be that you observe the sort of trauma and catastrophe that's happened in a character's life early on that has then sort of twisted them out of shape and made them into into the rather broken and often dangerous individual that they are. And a film like The Joker is horrifically disturbing in that kind of way. But this origin story is the origin story of Judah. I wonder if you remember back in chapter 37, it's Judah who says, let's sell him. And so all of this sort of circles around to Judah getting in trouble around silver. That's no coincidence. Judah's the one who wants to sell his brother as a slave. Judah, chapter 38, is the one who sleeps with his daughter-in-law because he thinks she's a prostitute. But then in chapter 43, Judah is the one who steps up, who becomes de facto the leading brother amongst the 12, the one who persuades Israel to let them take Benjamin down into Egypt. And then, at the end of chapter 44, it is Judah who, confronted by the horror of Benjamin, you see this kind of redemptive arc in his life, he becomes the one who says to Joseph, take me as a slave and send Benjamin home to his father. Do you see how the stories come full circle? He's gone from selling his brother as a slave to being willing to offer himself as a slave in place of his brother. Now, why does he want to sell his brother as a slave in chapter 37? Because his brother is his father's favorite. Why does he want to sell himself as a slave in chapter 44? It is because his brother is his father's favorite. Judah is a profoundly changed man. He starts off as a really crooked individual, focused on himself, willing to do terrible things to get what he wants. By the end of chapter 44, he is statesmanlike and willing to sacrifice himself for the good of another. 
he's learned the art of other person-centered, self-giving love. Now, the Judah origin story matters so much because it is from Judah that the kings of Israel will come. And even more than that, it is from Judah that Jesus Christ will eventually come. And so this moment of redemption in, in Judah's life looks like Jesus, doesn't it? Look at chapter 44, verse 33. Now then... Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Verse 34 would be an interesting one to reflect on uh, in terms of thinking about how much God loves his people But just think about verse 33. Judah wants to act as a substitute, as a sacrifice for his brother. This is the origin story at the beginning of the origin story of Jesus. Judah, Jesus' great ancestor, from whom his people take their name, is one willing to give his life in the place of another. Which is very beautiful. Now in terms of what's going on in the story, you can see progress with Joseph too. And it's, it's a, a progress of emotional intensity. So in chapter 42, uh, when he hears them saying these things about what they did to him, verse 24, he turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. Then when he meets uh, Benjamin in uh, chapter 43, uh, verse 29, and he says, is this uh, your younger brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there, and after he'd washed his face, he came out. So he's kind of weeping in front of the brothers and sort of turning his face and wiping his eyes. And then in in chapter 43, he's uh, so moved that he has to go and cry in another room and then wash his face before he comes out with them. So moved is he by what, what has happened in him being united or reunited with Benjamin, the only other son of his mother, Rachel. But if we can cheat and look at the very first verses of chapter 45, look what happens as a result of Judah's little speech. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. We come back to the fear. Now they actually know who they're dealing with. We'll find out in chapter 45 why they came not to be afraid in Joseph's presence. But two things. Here's the first. The wicked flee when no one pursues. A guilty conscience is a terrible thing to carry with you. 
And lots of us keep God at arm's length because there are things in our lives and things in our hearts and things in our pasts of which we are deeply ashamed. And actually we don't want God to get close to us because we think if he knows that about me, he will never accept me. This astonishing story of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers points to a much deeper, much bigger story of reconciliation between humanity and God. And what it says to us is you don't have to go through the rest of your life with a guilty conscience, terrified that at any moment, God is going to finally let the hammer drop on you. Guilty conscience is like the old uh, idea of the sword of Damocles that's gonna fall, held up by a thread. And you go through your life thinking, I know that at some point I'm going to get what's coming. And every good thing that happens, you think, maybe somehow this good thing is going to be the means of my undoing. And you don't believe that God can or will bless you. My dear friends, Ben was absolutely right. When we confess our sins, it is a privilege because we are people who can come to Almighty God and say, look, this is the worst of it. And there's stuff in my heart that I don't even know about. There's so much worse. But thank you that you have promised forgiveness. A clean conscience is part of the inheritance of every Christian. What you have taken and laid at the foot of the cross of Jesus is no longer yours to carry. That's the first thing. And here's the second. What we've seen through this story with Joseph so far and to this point is that God is at work slowly but surely to transform the brothers and particularly Judah. This is like the origin story in reverse and actually this is what the film Groundhog Day is all about. Bill Murray begins by realizing there's no consequences to anything he does because the day just resets uh, every morning. Uh, So he goes and does all the things that he desires and that doesn't really fulfill him and he begins to feel that's pretty empty. So he starts doing good things and he starts trying to improve himself and he starts learning to play the piano and he starts learning to make ice sculptures and he starts figuring out when bad things are going to happen to people uh, during that day and, 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 and sort of rescuing them and saving them. But none of that frees him from the loop that he's in. Uh, he's very attracted to his, um, uh, his co-star, and he, all the way through the story, he's, he's, he's trying to, um, well, effectively, he's trying to seduce her. And he thinks, maybe if I can just manage that, you know, the, uh, I'll break out of the loop. And he tries all kinds of things. He tries telling her he loves her. He tries grand gestures. None of it works. But in the end, he he gets to know her. And finally, actually falls in love with her. And he wakes up. And he hears Sonny and Cher on the radio. But then the banter is different. Now look, quick aside, um, the redemptive arc of most Hollywood stories is like that. It's about the redemptive power of romantic love. Uh, And it's a lie. Romantic love cannot save you. It is not the thing that ultimately will fulfill you and make you into the person you were made to be. 
Okay? It's, it, it, it's a wonderful thing, but, but Hollywood is selling you a pop with almost every film that you watch. Uh, and that's true with Groundhog Day. It's got some brilliant ideas and brilliant themes in it, but in the end, the, the thing that's redemptive is not the thing you were made for. Because the thing you were made for is a relationship with the God who made you. And through the sort of grinding repetition of these chapters, what we're seeing is that God is at work to transform the characters of the brothers. And I think the reason I get so bored and annoyed in the music, well, there are more than one reason maybe, but um, is that actually this bit doesn't feel like it's going anywhere. The constant replacing of the silver and Joseph's cup and all that. But in this bit that feels like the doldrums, it doesn't feel like you're getting to the end of the story. It doesn't feel like you're getting to the point. Why can't they just go down and get the grain and then that's the end? It takes half an hour off the running time. But you see, in this, in the sort of grind and the repetition and the doldrums and the difficult things and, uh, and the stuff the brothers don't want to have to go through, somehow, quietly and in the background, God is doing this wonderful work of making them more like himself. And you know, in the end, that is what God is committed to doing in your life. I think I spend so much of my time praying for the things I want to happen. I spend so much time waste so much time praying that my circumstances would change, that, you know, that things would be better. When actually I think when you observe God at work close up in people's lives the way we have done in Genesis uh, 37 following, actually what you see is that God is much more concerned to change your character than he is to change your circumstances. Uh, And that's true even when it comes to the new heavens and the new earth, I think. Because actually the point of heaven, as we call it in shorthand, is not that you get to be in a much better place. It's that you get to be in a perfect relationship with the perfect God who made you for himself. And so what God is busy doing in your life now is making you more like Jesus. He's transforming your character. That's the thing he wants for you more than anything. And I need to try to learn when things in my life are hard to pray that actually what God will do is that deep work in my heart and my soul to transform me to be like him. Actually changing my circumstances would be incredibly easy for God, but he is committed to the much harder work, which is changing my character. Just listen to these words from the Apostle John as I close. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Okay, so you're already the children of God, but one day you'll be gloriously revealed as the children of God. When you see Jesus, you will be like him because you'll see him the way that he is. That is the redemptive arc of your life. God is going to make you what you were meant to be. And it will be more glorious, says John, than you can imagine. What we will be is not yet known. No one can, can fathom what it'll be, what you'll be like. 
It'll be glorious. But even now, because of that, we're being transformed to be more and more like Jesus. So the person who has this hope purifies themselves even as Jesus is pure. That's what Jesus wants for you. That's what God wants for your life. To make you like himself. And the astonishing thing is that often, quietly, and in the background, and through the grind, and through all the things that you wish didn't happen, he is busy doing it. Which is brilliant news, because actually it means that the one who's really got the steering wheel is him, and not me. And many of the things that have changed me most in my life have been the things that I didn't plan and I would never have chosen and I wished hadn't happened. And yet in the midst of all of that, God was at work. May I lead us in a prayer. Father, we thank you that your gospel is so wonderful that actually we do not need to bear a guilty conscience because Jesus has purified us He has taken it all away. For those of us who struggle to let go of guilt, please, Father, help us by your spirit to really believe that Jesus has done what he says he has done and help us to leave it all at the foot of his cross. But, Father, too, we pray you'll teach us to have your priorities for our lives. You want us to be like Jesus. You want to transform our characters. And Father, though we're so often preoccupied with other things, we pray that you will teach us bit by bit to love what you love and to want what you want and to be keen to be at work with you in seeing our hearts and our lives changed to be more what you meant them to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.